know, the gospel is kind of interesting in the sense that it teaches us, obviously, about the moral life, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves with regards to issues of morality and ethics, but it's also noteworthy in terms of what it reveals to us about Jesus himself, what it reveals to us about his heart, the things that he likes, the things that he doesn't like, the things which move him, the things which inspire him, and on top of that, funny enough, the things which tend to make him upset, the things which tend to make him angry, the things which he tends to hate. And so for our purpose today, I want to focus on that last bit, you know, the things which Jesus tends to hate, because even though it sounds kind of strange, a really important part of the spiritual life is to discover what Jesus tends to hate, such that we too might come to learn to hate what Jesus also hates. So when it comes to this topic of the things that Jesus tends to hate, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, are the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is the classic example of, you know, loving the sinner but hating the sin. So just to make it clear, the Lord loves the scribes and the Pharisees. Make no mistake. The things he tends to hate, though, are the things that they do, the things that they say, the things that they teach. And specifically, the thing that Jesus tends to hate about these people is when they teach the people of God the wrong thing, when they make stuff up. When they add things to the deposit of faith that aren't supposed to be there, like empty obligations, made-up obligations with regards to the Sabbath day. He also hates it when they take stuff away, when they overemphasize, for example, God's justice as opposed to His mercy, or when they overemphasize the practice of external ritual as opposed to deep interior conversion. Jesus absolutely hates this sort of thing. And the reason why Jesus hates this stuff is because it gives a very mistaken impression that religion is unreasonable, religion is arbitrary, and religion just kind of heaps on heavy burdens on people's already difficult lives, which has, of course, the net effect of driving people away from the one living and true God. And again, Jesus absolutely hates that. Now, obviously, an essential part of the Christian thing is the cross. Hopefully, that goes without saying. So, whether we're talking about sacrifice, penance, self-denial, these are essential aspects of Christian practice. That said, it's always no in favor of a greater yes, right? So, yes to freedom, yes to peace, yes to happiness, yes to joy, yes to the realization of the deepest desires of the human heart. And the whole point is that if our witness of the faith, if our teaching of the faith, if our practice of the faith don't convey this essential reality, well then again, it has a net effect of driving people away from the one true faith and the one living and true God. And that's just not a good thing. But that brings us to the second thing which Jesus tends to hate, and that's essentially a lack of trust in God himself. A lack of trust in God himself. And that comes through in a whole variety of different passages in the gospel. And so, for example, think about the gospel of Mark chapter 9, the story of the boy who suffers from epilepsy. So you probably know how that story goes, right? This father goes up to Jesus and he kind of pleads on behalf of his boy who suffers from all the classic symptoms of epilepsy. He falls to the ground, he convulses, he foams at the mouth. So the boy has epilepsy. And the father, he goes to Jesus and obviously asks Jesus, begs Jesus for his help. But then he says this really provocative line. So basically what he says is, if you were able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And of course, as you might expect, Jesus is upset by this man's lack of faith. He's upset by this man's lack of trust. And so as a result, he scoffs at this man's line. He repeats this line with a certain disdain, if you were able, before basically challenging this man to up his faith game. In response to which the man gives that really famous line, right? I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. In the aftermath of which, of course, Jesus heals the boy suffering from epilepsy. 
you find a similar thing going on in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, right? So in the context of this story, the scribes and the Pharisees, they go up to Jesus and they ask him to provide for them a sign to verify that he's from the Lord, right? And the Gospel is kind of interesting in this regard, because if you think it through, the way it could have gone in terms of the telling of the story, it could have been told in terms of, you know, these guys come up to Jesus, they ask him for a sign, he simply says, no, the Gospel of the Lord, right? But the Gospel doesn't say that. So instead, what the Gospel says is that, again, the scribes and the Pharisees, they go up to Jesus, they ask him for a sign, but then the Gospel goes on to describe Jesus' physical response before he gives his verbal response. So what it says is that Jesus sighs. He lets out this great sigh of disappointment and massive frustration. And the reason why Jesus is so disappointed, the reason why he's so frustrated, is because he's not dealing in this case with the generic people of God. He's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees so-called experts in the law, the leaders of the people. These are the people who should know better. These are the people who should have faith, who should trust him, but they don't. Even these people don't trust him as a result of which, again, he gives this massive sigh of disappointments and frustration. But that, of course, brings us to the third example in this regard. And this is taken from the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. It's the classic story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And so you probably know the story by heart. Here is Jesus who's being tempted in a desert where he has been fasting and praying for 40 days in anticipation of his public ministry, right? And the, the devil issues to him three different temptations. And without going into a whole lot of detail in terms of what the particular nature of those temptations actually are, suffice to say that the basic structure is essentially the same. If you were the Son of God, you would do this. Or if you were the Son of God, you would do that. In other words, if you really cared, if you really loved the people of God, if you're actually real, if you're actually, you know, from the Lord, right, then you would act in the way that I expect you to act. You would act in the way that I'm demanding you now to act. In other words, I don't trust you. In other words, we don't trust you. And once you frame it like that, is it any wonder that the Lord is completely upset by the temptations and ultimately casts Satan away from him at the end of the story? Okay, now at this point, perhaps it might be kind of helpful to clarify exactly why Jesus is so upset when the people of God don't trust him. And I guess the thing I want to clarify right off the bat is that it's not some arbitrary pet peeve, right? And so it's not like Jesus has some personality defect, some personality flaw where all of a sudden, you know, when someone doesn't trust him, he's triggered and he lashes out. It's not about that, right? The reason why Jesus is so upset when the people of God don't trust him is for very specific and technical reasons. The first reason goes back to the book of Genesis, specifically to the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So the question is this, what brought about the reality of original sin into this world? Original sin, of course, being the primordial sin from which all sin ultimately flows. Well, it's kind of interesting. When you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, what it says is that original sin entered into this world because of a deep lack of trust. Somewhere along the way, Adam and Eve, again, our first parents, stopped trusting in God. They stopped believing in His love. They stopped trusting in His providence. And that's the reason why we're in this pickle today, with the proliferation of sin and everything that implies. And the whole point is that Jesus obviously knows this. And so when people in the context of the Bible, or even people in the context of today, continue to make that same mistake, that same original and fundamental error of failing to trust in God, Jesus obviously knows they're making the same mistake as Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis. And he can't help himself. That's the sort of thing which makes him absolutely frustrated because it keeps people locked in the pattern of sin. But, you know, that said, I think the second and more fundamental reason why Jesus is absolutely frustrated when the people of God don't trust him is because a lack of trust is directly opposed to what God ultimately wants for the people of God. And what does he want? He wants us to be his friend. 
And the idea is that you can't really be friends with someone you don't actually trust. And so a lack of trust in a certain sense, depending on how you look at it, is fundamentally opposed to the whole fundamental principle of organized religion. And so religion, you know, it means to bind back to, right? So the idea is that through the practice of religion, I bind myself back to the one living and true God in a stance of holiness, in a stance of belonging, but more fundamentally speaking, in a stance of friendship. And so when I don't trust God, in a certain sense, I'm frustrating the original point, the whole purpose of organized religion. And again, that's the sort of thing which makes Jesus absolutely frustrated. Okay, now in light of all this, it obviously kind of begs the question, what do we do, right? What do we do to console the Sacred Heart of Christ by cultivating and living out of the stance of habitual trust in God? Well, the thing that kind of comes to mind is actually my favorite passage in the entire gospel, the gospel of Matthew chapter 11, which basically goes like this. Come to me, all you who are weary, and find life burdensome, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, obviously, we don't have a lot of time to fully expound upon this particular passage from an exegetical perspective. But perhaps I would suggest that for our purposes today, the most important concept to be derived from this passage is this notion of the yoke. And so the whole idea here is if you want to enter into the Lord's rest, if you want to enter into His peace, the peace of Christ which is beyond understanding, you must be very intentional and specific about taking on the Lord's yoke as opposed to some competing yoke. And so, for example, you must not take on the yoke of the world. And on top of that, you must not take on some made-up yoke like the scribes and the Pharisees. But instead, again, you must take on specifically the Lord's yoke because it is only the Lord's yoke which is easy and His burden which is light. And so they illustrate the point and really kind of drive the point home. I want to end now with an example from the life of this really great Catholic author named Colleen Campbell, who wrote this really terrific book called The Heart of Perfection. So as the story goes, Colleen was pretty exhausted after taking care of the kids all day and all night, especially in the absence of her husband who was hanging out with his friends, as a result of which the plan was to simply say the rosary and then go to bed, and to get up the next morning to kind of work on her new book for about four hours. So that was the plan. But then what happened is that as Colleen sat down to pray her rosary, all of a sudden this idea came to her head as to a new book she might write in the future. As a result of which she stopped praying her rosary, she took out her smartphone and started taking notes. And funny enough, this particular pattern ended up repeating itself time and time again. So recurringly, she would get an idea, she would stop praying the rosary, she would stop to take notes, only to have another idea come, which would continue to stop her from praying the rosary, until finally, she never got around to praying the rosary, she went to bed super late, and the next morning, she was completely unproductive during those four hours that she had originally allocated to writing her new book, because she was just completely exhausted. And as for those ideas, which had come to her throughout the course of the evening, originally she thought they were brilliant, but it turns out, not so much. And so basically at the end of it, when she kind of stopped and thought about it and took the thing to prayer, she realized in retrospect, the most trusting thing she could have done, the most holy thing she could have done, funny enough, was to say her rosary and simply go to bed. And Prasma suggests, friends, that that is what it actually looks like to trust in the Lord. In other words, trusting in God is not about taking unreasonable risks, like throwing yourself off a cliff and hoping God's angels catch you. Trusting in the Lord is all about focusing on the few things the Lord wants you to do carefully and well, and trusting that He'll take care of the rest. Mindful that in the words of Heather Kim, playing on the language of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, the Lord never calls you to feed the 5,000. He only calls you to provide the five loaves and the two fish, and to trust that in time, He will bring about the increase. He will feed the 5,000. That, again, my friends, is what it looks like to trust in the Lord. And may God bless you all.